Well, kia ora and welcome to Over the Horizon, New Zealand Over the Horizon. With uh, Bernard Hickey, I'm from the Kaka, and in Auckland we've got Peter Bauer. G'day, Peter. Hi, Bernard. How are you getting on down there? I think there's a bit of a storm, bit of a windstorm down there, isn't there? Or a wind oh, event? Yeah. yeah, wind event. Um, this time of year, July, August, September, is just wild. And yeah. I'm, I'm pretty over it, to be frank. <laughs> my, well, my, my starts, yes, very exciting. Yes, after 11 years of um, stepping out the door and being blown back inside the house, I'm sort mm. of... Um, yeah. Over it, but that's that's <laughs> over over it, yeah. But um, great to great to see and hear you again, um, and yeah. uh, and talk about the world's events. Yeah, so I think we'll be talking today about interest rates and inflation, both in New Zealand and internationally. Whether the government, whether any government in New Zealand can achieve anything under MMP, which I think has been one of your big subjects this week. Uh, and then when when we talk about world events, I'm expecting that we might talk about Afghanistan a rather extraordinary smoking gun from uh, Moscow, um, the murder of a Dutch investigative journalist, uh, unrest in South Africa, and an absolutely ludicrous speech by Boris Johnson, and a handgun made of Lego to finish it when we do oh. our skateboarding dog section. Oh. But you, you know, everything in New Zealand uh, revolves around houses, and everything therefore revolves around interest rates. And we've had a bit of an inflation warning this week. I mean, you and I have talked about this before, but and, and you've been a bit of an inflation skeptic. But what's happening? It seems to be turning around quite fast here. Well, what we have now is actually a big difference between how New Zealand sees inflation, or all of the supposed experts, the Reserve Bank, and the economists see inflation, and how the rest of the world sees inflation. So in March and April, the world's financial markets got itself into quite a tiz um, when it started to look ahead and see a surge of inflation coming because of all these logistics problems because of COVID. And of course, many people who um, are returning to normality as the vaccination rates improve in Europe and the United States. And of course, what happened was a lot of people during lockdown basically decided not to go back to work um, or decided to move. And so there's a real problem with skills mismatch. And Mm. everyone in the financial markets, March and April, started to think, oh, no, we've got an inflation problem here. The the US Federal Reserve is going to have to hike interest rates quickly and um, we're going back to the 70s, stagflation and uh, all sorts of drama. Yeah. And so we saw the um, global interest rate market start to price in a big increase in inflation. In fact, the 10-year US Treasury yield got up to nearly 1.8%, which um, in the world of treasuries is pretty shocking. Well, uh, since then, the US Federal Reserve has essentially convinced everyone that it's just temporary. So Jerome, Yeah, I saw Janet Yellen talking about that today, Bernard, and it, it just... It does seem as though New Zealand is a bit of an outlier then, doesn't it? That's right. We're, I worry a little bit, and frankly, this is one of the reasons for this particular podcast, is that New Zealand is becoming increasingly isolated. You know, we've got um, less than four or 5,000 people coming in and out every week. Mm. Uh, we, we, we used to have a million people uh, sluicing in and out of New Zealand. And because our media and the way we consume it is not very connected to the rest of the world, I think, usually when you open the front pages of the papers or you watch the nightly news bulletins or look online, it's very much local news. And so I think we're becoming a bit con- disconnected from the rest of the world. That's a very interesting thought that that's actually, you know, that, that, you know because there's, there's been a desirable aspect of being disconnected during COVID. Um, but it's a very, it's very interesting if you think it should be an actual risk as well, that we're not quite... Do you think our politicians are becoming um, isolated as well, despite Jacinda 
Ardern talking this week to Biden and to Xi, Xi Jinping? Yeah, I think that's a risk. Um, luckily for us, uh, no one depends on us and there hasn't been too many events that have forced us to do certain things other than COVID itself. The relationship, I think, with Australia is quite strong and there has been, I know that uh, Jacinda Ardern is regularly texting uh, um, Scott Morrison and they, they have become quite close through mm. the um, COVID what, what crisis. Buddies? Yeah. And I think, yeah, well, he uh, hasn't got very many friends in Australia, of course. <laughs> That's right. And, and also, the, the one good thing he has done, and to be fair, Australia has done, is sort of copy, or at least um, shadow, New Zealand's attempt to eliminate COVID-19. Mm. Mm. Obviously, that is under severe stress at the moment in Australia. But it has been a remarkable success um, overall in that Australia and New Zealand really in the developed world pretty much alone, even the likes of Taiwan, Vietnam now in all sorts of trouble, Malaysia, it's out of control. Uh, mm. um, apart from maybe China, and we have to hope yep. that the Chinese are reporting it everything correctly, China and uh, and us, we, we're, we've been, you know, two of the outliers. And it is, um, it's really interesting, though, that New Zealand is sort of losing touch a bit with the rest of the world. And I obviously yeah. focus well, on we the should, financial. We should, pull it, we, should, we should absolutely work to pull it back in touch then. Yeah, or to, yeah, you know, I mean that's that's sort of the subject of the thing that I do for the spin-off is an attempt to try to uh, not necessarily bring the biggest stories back, but some of the underreported stories. But just just going back to this one, do you think that the Reserve Bank in New Zealand and and the New Zealand politicians are reacting too quickly or are trying to get ahead of problems too much, and should should be just leaving it alone and should be keeping um, quantitative easing going, or are they right to try and? cap inflation before it even rears its sticky snout. Yeah. I think the um, the Reserve Bank here should uh, hold its horses uh, for quite a bit longer yet. I think the jury is still out on whether this is an inflation, uh, a big increase in inflation that's permanent that needs to be beaten back down or whether it's a, a part-time thing that will naturally wash out. And the rest mm. of the world, they think it's going to wash out. So the US Federal Reserve has convinced the markets that's the case. The US 10-year Treasury yield is down right down below 1.3%. Remember, it was up over 1.8, and now it's down at 1.3. And that's because the Delta variant sweeping through uh, Europe and the United States and, of course, into other places, um, uh, you know, started in India and caused all sorts of grief there. But, um, mm. you know, Latin America, sadly, um, Africa, and you'll talk a bit more about uh, South Africa in, in a minute. But, uh, you know, this is really slowing down the global economy again, this new yeah. Delta Delta um, variant, and you know there are various problems with logistics chains, and something we don't really understand. A lot of New Zealanders haven't really thought about or don't understand yet, is that all of these ships and containers and all the logistics chains would seem to do quite well for the first, you know, six twelve months of COVID, and now starting to break down in large part because a lot of the crews have been on those ships for a year. Yeah, and, yeah, and absolutely. Not, Absolutely. And, no, and normally, you know, they get off and have a break occasionally. And, of course, they're starting to get off and have a break and catch it. And we've had a yep. couple of cases this week where ships have uh, turned up in port. You know, you just imagine these scenes of ships, you know, slowly coming in and people at the at the rails, you know, waving, waving and pointing and hoping that someone will come and rescue them. And that's what we're seeing a, a bit more of. And not only that, but, of course, a lot of the workers in the ports, particularly in the United States, have had problems. And so not only do you have problems on the sea lanes, but you have problems at the ports in those yep. areas. And, and these second waves, 
are disrupting the logistics again. So, is there also, just, also Bernard, in New, in New Zealand's case where you've had a very high number of um, foreign workers on on relatively short um, visas? Are we also are we also seeing inflation uh, in wages and? Certainly in the, in the wage market, at least, there's a very tight wage market, but employers seem very reluctant and the government seems oddly reluctant in a sense to push up wages. I mean, that would be the interesting test, wouldn't it, whether New Zealand could have, you know, a, a significantly higher uh, wage economy and see if that, I mean, clearly that would flow through into some costs, but um, it might also bring, bring more people into the labour market. That's right. Um, we're not seeing the, the market working properly here. If we've got these big skills mismatches and problems with labour shortages, you'd expect uh, the market to work, you know, match supply and demand with a higher price. But we're not seeing that in any sort of widespread sense. You are seeing sort of one-off payments, you know, sort of welcome welcome to the business yeah. payments. Yeah. One-off, one you know, come and join us for 5K. Uh, but we're not actually changing your your basic hourly pay rate that much. And it was interesting to see some numbers out of Hayes, the uh, recruiting company this week, on mm-hmm. the number of hours that New Zealanders have worked over the last uh, year. And it turned out, you know, more than 60% of New Zealanders have worked overtime, and more than half mm-hmm. of that overtime wasn't paid. So I was going to say, we, do you think home, you know, working at home for those periods as well? I, I don't know about you, but I, yeah, I feel as so though the day is slightly longer. That's right. I mean, you feel um, once you've been at, at your laptop on the 17th Zoom call of the day mm. and you've, you've worked through your 400 emails, um, and of course everyone's still sending emails, and it, 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 there is this um, shimmer, a sort of a, a um, it feels like you're being productive. You're firing these emails off and you're having all these meetings and you're doing all this yeah. stuff and it feels productive and you're, you're not having to spend two hours a day in traffic. But actually, you know, after a while you start to get, quite tired and this this zoom burnout yeah. is well, especially if you look at your twitter twitter flow as much as i do and then just and and, and use it as a procrastination device which is when you think <laughs> you're um keeping on but but Bernard, just going back to inflation in a minute i mean could new zealand be an outlier and actually see inflation and what might that do for your favorite subject which is housing yeah well that's that's right the jury's still out on it and we got some numbers today on the June quarter CPI, and it was 3.3% up from a year ago. Now, that was quite a bit stronger than what both the Reserve Bank and most economists were expecting. They were expecting 28 2.9%. Mm-hmm. Instead, we got 3.3%. Now, most of that inflation is coming from the housing market, of course, yeah. because rents and the price of new houses were up. And uh, now we have most economists expecting the Reserve Bank to put up the official cash rate uh, next month, as soon as next month, by 0.25%. And also this week, the Reserve Bank surprised a few people by saying it would stop its money printing next yeah, week. Yeah, which is incredibly which, interesting, isn't it? I mean, do, do you think it just do, do you think that just shows that it's actually been right to do that money printing? Because I mean, the very fact that it, that it feels it can slow it down or stop it doesn't that suggest that it was right to do it previously? Because it doesn't you know it's actually had the effect it desired. Now it needs to moderate it. Yeah, I'm I'm in two minds on this. I'm I'm a a dove on a monetary policy since I think mm. the Reserve Bank and Reserve Banks around the world for a decade have been running monetary policy too tight because they mm-hmm. worried too much about inflation or they essentially overestimated how how strong inflation was. They didn't take into account the growth of or the way that the, the iPhone and the Android phone mm. rapid rollout and the use of apps, the development of the likes of Uber and the take up of Netflix and the likes how that has dragged prices down and exerted this chilling force on 
prices right around the world, not to mention, you know, 20 years of globalization of the manufacturing sector, which has continued on. And the central banks of the world and pretty much everyone else misjudged how low inflation would go. And so yeah. essentially they've been chasing their tail ever since. Now, um, the Fed, the European Central Bank and the Reserve Bank of Australia have all decided that rather than shoot first and ask questions later by putting up interest rates at the first sign of inflation, they're now waiting to see the whites of the eyes of inflation mm. before mm. they move. Whereas New Zealand is still in that old uh, muscle memory of uh, putting up interest rates as soon as the inflation appears on the horizon. I think yeah. that could be a mistake, but but I'm in two minds on money printing. I actually think that the way we did the money printing, the quantitative easing where you print money and you buy government bonds to push down longer-term interest rates, that, of course, seems fair in that money has not been given away. It's being used to yeah. buy assets. But the yeah. effect of it is to essentially make already rich people much, much richer, and that money is not trickling down to um, poor people. My preference would actually yeah. have been to use that um, money printing, if you like, uh, and that bond buying to ensure that um, a significant portion of the population got um, simply cash. You know, this is what happened yeah, in the United a, States. Almost like a, universal, a universal benefit, yeah. Yeah, even if it was a one-off thing, a one-off mm. cash payment, in theory, wouldn't change inflation expectations too much. It would be much fairer. And in fact, for a lot of poorer people, the first thing they do is repay debt rather than just go yeah. out and you know, have a party. So. It would have been much more effective and I think would have staved off some of the backlash. I think will come in the years to come when people work out that their governments and central banks have used their power to print money to make already rich people much, much richer. And that is going to come back and haunt governments in the, in the long run, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, very interesting. But so, what do you, what do you, so what do you think is going to happen with the housing aspect, Bernard? I mean, is it, oh, are we yes. going to see some sort of hiatus? For the next, well, you know, two or three that, months or not? That's that's the theory. When people who are buying see interest rates start to go up, and that will um, that will uh, um, put a chilling effect into the market. However, it has stayed strong and hot for much longer than we all expected. To give you an idea, this week we got numbers from the Real Estate Institute showing that inflation around the country in annualised terms is currently running at about 10 to 15% if you look at the last mm. two, three months. Actually, inflation from a year ago is now up 30% across the country. And when you look in some particular areas, the shock of how much they've increased is, is, yeah. is just astonishing. For example, Palmerston North. I don't know if you... you have you ever lived in Palmerston North? I have. Um, I, I, I haven't lived there. Um, it was it, Going there was like going to Paris when I lived in uh, Masterton. <laughs> That's right. Well, Paris. Yes, uh, yeah. Paris on the Manawatu. That's right. Their house prices rose 61% in the last year. In Wellington, prices rose 46% in the last year. That is, the, that is the sort of thing that you know shocks people to their core and means that they remember it for the rest of their lives and it changes the way they think about you know, whether they should panic the next time everyone else says you should buy. It's the sort of thing that, that beds in fear of missing out in a really big way. And mm. yes, things have quietened down a bit from you know November through March when prices were rising literally at around 30 to 40% per annum, that sort of rate slowed down to 10 to 20%. And you'd have to think the prospect of higher interest rates will cool that down towards zero. But the cat's sort of out of the bag now. 
Yeah. And it's it's going to be hard to shove that sucker mm. back in. It is. It's going to be, you know, it's really hard to see what's going to what's going to cause this to sort of moderate in any in any way other than something really bad. And there's nothing really bad in the in the on the horizon yet, unless of course we get a major COVID outbreak here and then presumably go into recession at some point. But I don't think anybody's actually forecasting that right now. No, I mean that's the other. Quite thing. The Everyone's talking about inflation here, but you know over the over the the Tasman, we're now the bubble's pretty much finished. Um, I think we can get into Brisbane for now, but that, you can't imagine it's mm. going to last much longer. Sydney's going to be in a proper lockdown for at least six weeks. Melbourne went into a lockdown last night, a bit of a snap lockdown. That's going to slow the Australian economy. And the Chinese economy actually hasn't been doing very well. It came out with numbers this week showing a, a slowdown. So that's um, that's a bit of a concern. And, you know, there's yeah. plenty of stuff on the geopolitical horizon to uh, make Absolutely us a little bit, bit, bit nervous. Tell us about um, this is a cracking story out of Moscow uh, today well, from the Guardian. Yes. Yeah, so it's a it's a story. I mean, I love this story because I it rings absolutely true. Which is that you know Russia we 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 are well aware. I mean, all the Russia all the American intelligence agencies say it is correct that Russia intervened in the 2016 elections to support Trump. Um, but what this purports to be is a set of alleged Kremlin documents uh, leaked to The Guardian, which um, show that this was personally ordered by Putin and it gives uh, theoretically an insight into into what they perceive to be Trump's character. Now, what what I worry about with it is it's just almost too good to be true. I mean, the, <laughs> it's in Russian, it's uh, well-typed, it's, it clearly is, you know, Purporting to be the minutes of a of a of a secret meeting in the Kremlin. Also, I just don't know when we last heard anything significant leaked from the Kremlin. I mean, what you know, what you sometimes get is a defector or somebody like that bringing vast amounts of documents with them. But I don't know. It, it, I, I hope it's true. Um, the Washington Post has a very good story on it where it says, you know, yes, it's interesting, confirms a lot of things if true. But it really is this if true thing. And the Guardian doesn't have a perfect record on this, including. Um, the very clever one of the writers on it, Luke Harding, uh, who, who was a Russian correspondent, um, he was involved in a story which the Guardian has has yet to withdraw or correct that uh, Paul Manafort um, met Julian Assange in London, and it would appear that that story was entirely incorrect, but it's never been corrected, and the Guardian's never withdrawn it. So, I, you know, I, I think they have some ethical ethical answers to give about that, and so I, I would hope this is true. But I just, I just have a, you know, that, that there is a classic sort of journalist idea of a story that is just too good to be true. Um, <laughs> and you know, they talk about, you know, the 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 spy, the Russian spy agency talked about um, Trump being quotes mentally unstable. Um, talks about the idea that they had what's called compromat on him, which is the classic um, communist era idea that they had information which um, he was so afraid of coming out that it made him, him easier to manipulate. Um, you know, it all rings very, very, very true, but you know, it just, it just is almost too good to be true. And what? Let me read you this quote. It describes Trump as quotes impulsive, mentally unstable, and unbalanced individual who suffers from an inferiority complex. Close quotes, which is a pretty good assessment of him. Um, and and it, you know, it wouldn't surprise. Well, I would love it if it were true because it would be a kind of validation of my personal suspicion that this is exactly what Putin has been doing because he's such a cunning bugger. You know, he really is an extraordinary cunning uh, former KGB agent who has deployed 
misinformation, disinformation, and this kind of intervention into the sort of soft underbelly of freedom of speech in the US to extraordinary effect. You know, there's a, there's a concept of asymmetric war, and he has he has deployed it absolutely brilliantly. Um, so anyway, I think we will we will I would hope later today we might see more from the Guardian. I mean, the Guardian does have. Um, comments from a leading Russian uh, historian and from the former ambassador to UK ambassador to Moscow about it, giving it some validation. But, you know, you may, you're too young, I'm sure, Bernard, to remember the Hitler diaries, uh, which were in the Sunday Times many years ago, and which, um, you know, destroyed, nearly destroyed the Sunday Times when they had to apologize for it, for it and withdraw the story, and also really did destroy the career of one of, one of Britain's most famous historians who validated it. And again, it was because they were all just so keen that it ought to be true that they kind of made it true. So we'll, we'll watch the space on that one. Yeah. And um, another one of those stories that keeps bubbling away, Afghanistan, with the Americans pulling out properly, it's all starting to go to custard, isn't it? It is going to custard, Bernard, and it's, and it's incredibly depressing. You know, the British have pulled out as well. The Americans are, you know, will pull out, I think, rather weirdly on September, the, you know, by September the 11th. Uh, and the Taliban is just conducting a bit of a route, it seems, right around, particularly around the borders. Um, they they appear now to control the border with Pakistan, which is extremely important because, of course, Pakistan has, you know, while supposedly um, assisting the Americans in Afghanistan, they've really undermined them throughout by supporting the, the, the Taliban itself. I mean, it is the most extraordinarily perverse uh, behavior by Pakistan, which is which is very also about keeping India, you know, keeping an, un an unstable Afghanistan is good for Pakistan to some extent. Um, and, and one of the aspects of the story that I'm kind of, I'm very fascinated by really is the warlords. We're getting a return of, you know, really real rat bags who have taken over certain areas of, of, um, of, of Afghanistan and historically, you know, have, have uh, regional uh, fiefdoms. And one, one of the most interesting ones is a guy called uh, Ahmad Massoud, uh, whose father, Ahmad Shah Massoud, Massoud, you might remember, was murdered by Al-Qaeda people who dressed up as uh, Al Jazeera, I think it was, uh, camera people to interview him and, and they, they blew him up with with themselves. I mean, these are these are people who control very important access routes. Often, they're often very heavily connected into the opium trade. Um, and in one case, Ab Abdul Rashid Dostum, um, uh, he's, he's, a, he's a, a, a Tajik, um, uh, Afga Afghani, who you know really sort of controls or has controlled that that really important route up into up into Tajikistan. So, I, I think you're going to get a lot of these kinds of people resurface. Um, but it also seems as though the Taliban is in such control that they or in such influence now that they will uh, probably they may well just sweep them aside. So it'd be interesting to see who supports whom in this um, in this struggle. Yeah, I mean, I love the description of Abdul Rashid Dostum as a veteran anti-Soviet, anti-Taliban, pro himself. <laughs> well, that was my description, just because he's there. You know, he's 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 really there for Dostum. You know. Yeah. Uh, but you know, many of these people were, of course, extraordinarily brave. I mean, we, you, 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 I was looking at something today, and uh, there's a good film called Charlie Wilson's War, which is about a rather obscure American senator who. Um, for some reason, kind of took it upon himself to support the Mujahideen and became a, a very important sort of director of U.S. funds to the Mujahideen, which was the the group of um, theoretical freedom fighters who uh, made it almost impossible in the same made it impossible for the Russians to to 
properly occupy Afghanistan in the same way as the Taliban has made it impossible for the Americans to occupy uh, Afghanistan for all this time. You know, and, it, the, and if we think about it, that really brought brought Russia down and United, brought the Soviet Union down in 1989. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, that's the one with Tom Hanks, I think. That, and it, it's a. I think it might be Tom Hanks who I think he might have played Charlie Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. And but you know, we have, of, do you remember we had you know we gave them Stinger missiles. You know, we we just we armed them to the to the teeth. And of course, who was the most famous of the Mujahideen? Osama bin Laden. Yeah. So you know, they're all they you know what what goes around comes around. And it, comes, it usually comes around and explodes in your face. Yeah, it must be so galling for the Americans and also all those veterans who spent so long there fighting right. and, lo- and right. losing their well, colleagues to, to exactly see right. such an ignominious defeat and withdrawal. It really smacks of, you know, um, you know the helicopters coming off the roof of the Saigon embassy. Um, yep. Uh, but, yeah, well, you know, I, I, Al-Qaeda has been talking, this, talking about this as the year of America running away. Mm. Um, and 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 it is it's you know it is a remarkable you know they use that expression in the states about blood and treasure, and you know there's a trillion dollars and you know a huge amount of blood spilled. Yeah, in your um, piece for the spin-off, the uh, the World Bulletin, you've got a, a, um, some great links to uh, various articles on understanding Afghanistan and uh, mm. a terrific list of. Um, reading on Afghanistan from William Dalrymple, who uh, I went yeah. to listen to, at a, to speak at a book festival in Auckland um, a while ago, and uh, he was uh, fascinating on the way that Britain left with its tail between its legs. Absolutely. Well, he wrote, a, he wrote a really good book about that about that withdrawal, and I think we mentioned it the other day, where there's a scene in that where the uh, Afghanis murdered, killed everybody, uh, everybody but one guy from a from a, a fleeing British um, uh, column and sent him off on his horse, sort of more or less cut in two in, as, as a warning to anybody else not to come back. Now, one uh, conflict that we don't hear a lot about here in New Zealand, but but which is um, uh, occupying the minds of um, plenty in the, in the world uh, community, is Ethiopia, uh, where mm. um, uh, there was a what appeared to be a ceasefire with... Rebels in Tigray, but um, it's never as simple as it. No, well, this is you know it's because, what's weird about it is the you know the the Ethiopian central government and Addis Ababa, led by a Nobel Prize winning president uh, Abiy Ahmed, um, moved into Tigray to try and put down a kind of revolt. I mean, the Tigrayans have been kind of in charge of large parts of Ethiopia and large parts of sort of Ethiopian politics for for many years. And um, his forces started getting routed by the rebels in Tigray, uh, who'd also fought off the, the neighboring Eritreans. And so he, he called this um, unilateral ceasefire partly because he was having his art handed to him. Uh, and now the um, Tigrayans are pushing south towards um, uh, you know, more populated areas of Ethiopia. It, it is just a disaster. You know, and this is a country that um, you know, struggles with food, struggles with the environment, struggles in a in an in an area of some pretty nasty neighbours. Um, it does not need this conflict, but um, you know, it's an awful crisis, and uh, you know, it's another case really of a, of somebody who won the Nobel Peace Prize not perhaps um, being worthy of it within within a matter of years. Yeah, um, and that's such an important part of the world. It's the Horn of Africa with all of those trade routes. Going past, mm. everyone seems to want their own their own port or their own um, naval base there, and uh, that's a part of the world that's pretty 
volatile, and it doesn't help too when the when the ships get stuck in the Suez Canal. But the Ever Given right. is um, finally, finally going out. to leave. Finally out. Yeah, it's finally out with its. Eight, I think it's eighteen thousand, nearly twenty thousand containers. Uh, they paid a fine, effectively, um, probably something like five hundred million dollars. But they, you know, they, they, the Egyptians originally wanted to charge nine hundred million dollars. Then that oh. fee came down to five fifty. Five fifty. Half so, a billion dollars. Yeah. That's yeah. So some parking ticket. That, yeah. So one assumes that their insurers have paid something between that and some other figure. So you know, we don't know what it, we don't know what it is at the stage. But that ship is out. And, and kind of what's interesting is that the uh, the um, Al Jazeera reported this week that the, the Suez Canal Authority um, has has had record income over the past year despite this closure. So it's it's kind of interesting. You know, it, it is a key still, a, as we know, a key artery of global trade. Um, and it is one of the great beneficiaries of, of globalization, which continues to pace. Yeah, for me, that's a reminder that, um, sure, bad things happen in the world of global logistics, but eventually they clear themselves up. And it's interesting, this week, we've seen a couple of other signs that um, things are starting to repair themselves. You know, mm. nature is healing in the world of global capitalism, which is that TSMC, the world's biggest computer chip maker, came out and said that it looks like the blockages are clearing in the global chip industry yep. and that the car makers, many of whom have had to shut their production lines down in the last year because of inability to um, get the key chips they need to, you know, put the windows up and <laughs> up and down and make mm. their touchscreen TVs work, which seems bizarre, really. It's just a car. But, um, well, also their uh, engine management systems, you know, oh, it's, yes. it's really critical. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, now TSMC is saying that the chip supply is getting back up to speed and these factories should be able to open fairly soon. Also, yeah. um, one thing that the inflationistas have talked about a lot is the price of lumber in the United States, where, a bit like here, there's been a building boom and a housing boom, which has stressed supply lines for uh, the construction sector. And in America, uh, lumber prices got to complete record highs. They tripled in a matter of months. Well, in the last couple of weeks, they have collapsed again. And uh, for me, that's an interesting sign that, uh, yet you, I suspect this inflation uh, surge will be more yeah, temporary that is a, than a lot that of people That is extremely think. interesting, yeah. yeah. I, I was also struck, Bernard, there was a story this week that um, Apple is looking to its Chinese and Taiwanese and other suppliers to potentially increase iPhone production, particularly, you know, as we will see a new iPhone come out some probably August, September, something like that. They were looking to increase production by up to 20%. Wow. So, you know, that is, that, that is you know, the iPhone is, is itself a kind of part of the global economy, but it's also a really interesting leading indicator. Yeah. I mean, if, if people are, understandably, probably spending more time on their phones, on their couches, um, there, there is... Plenty of demand for products and stuff is being sold. Uh, and it's sort of amazing, really, when you think back to, you know, March and April of last year, when it felt like the whole world was stopping and you couldn't imagine mm. that we could get out of this without a major depression. And yet here we are now talking about labor shortages, about price increases, people putting up interest rates, you know, record sales of all sorts of things, record prices of all sorts, even houses and pumps to north. Mm, mm. You know, it's um, it's quite an just standing back. It's quite an amazing thing, and the sorts of crazy things we're hearing. Tell us about. I mean, COVID, of course, is just still dominating the yep. the news agenda. Yeah, but well, Tennessee. I, I, I still try. To, you what? 
Tennessee. Tell us what's going on in Tennessee. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's one of the most depressing stories I've seen in a long time in this because you, you've now got a situation in the U.S. where I think it's 99.2% of the people who are dying in the United States of COVID are unvaccinated. And, you know, Tennessee, which we you know can make jokes about, uh, made a decision this week to ban vaccine education uh, to children mm. of all kinds. And that includes polio, uh, COVID-19, measles, they're not, and, and what, what this appears to be uh, an answer to or a response to is the idea that you know, vaccine-resistant parents are being nagged by their children or their children are finding their own way to get COVID. Uh, and what this means is that, is that children, for example, who get their first, first uh, uh, vac- uh, COVID-19 injection will not be able to get, will not be notified of the second one. And just, it, it is just the most, to me, the most extraordinary, uh, Sort of burst of ignorance uh, and determined ignorance to um, deny these people access to this information and and therefore access to, uh, to life saving vaccinations and it's it's amazing. You know, it's worth I mean, remembering. Is... There's more than six hundred thousand Americans have died so far. Ah, and it seems extraordinary to me. I mean, this is the richest, most sophisticated, you know, country in the world with you know mm. decades and decades of of being at the leading edge of things. And, and yet we have one of the major political parties that is in power in a lot of states doing stuff. What I can't quite understand is where the grown-ups in the Republican movement have That's gone. Right. No, no, and, and, and when the sort of um, the penny drops for the remotely sensible supporters, um, you know, because at, at various times it has, been, um, it has been a reasonable thing to be a Republican. That's reasonable right. No, people no, I think it's, can, yep. And, and it's also, it's, what's weird about it is, to me, and this is also true in the UK to some extent, is that you've got, you know, the right-wing media is effectively killing its own audience and giving its own, it's giving its own audience incredibly bad advice. There was a very, another, you know, to your point about, you know, we think of the United States as being very effective. And I think I mentioned last week that I'd recently finished Michael, Michael uh, Lewis's new book, The Premonition, which is an excellent book about COVID, the incompetence of the CDC and the incompetence of the Trump, Trump administration in dealing with it. But one of the areas where New Zealand has been astoundingly uh, competent, as has the UK actually, has been in genome testing. And New Zealand, of course, tests every single um, uh, 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 COVID case in order to find out exactly where, the, where, where it's come from. The United States is, states is testing less than 2% of, um, of, of really? cases because it has no national testing service. Everything is all linked to private healthcare and private private researchers and private private whatever. There is no idea. You know, so they have they're starting to get the Delta variant, but they really don't know where it's come from. They don't and it, and it, so it, it, they're all they work blind in a way that I think uh, would be extraordinary. Of course, we have to recognise that New Zealand is much 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 smaller, and, and by going for an elimination strategy, has made the job of doing the genomic testing uh, much easier. But yeah, I mean, the UK has done at least, I think it's 10%, 10 to 12% of its cases um, get genomically tested. So, Because otherwise you just can't pick up um, either sources of infection or the way it's spreading or new variants. Yeah, I wonder when the penny drops um, for all of those people in the United States who have over, at various points supported the Republican Party and when you actually see a... You know, climate change, um, tobacco, arms sales, backlash in corporate America, actually, to mm. remember that, you know, corporate America has funded the Republican Party for much of the last uh, 20 to 30 years. 
Yep. And at some point, someone on the board is going to pipe up and say, you know, you, you're actually funding a whole bunch of ideas and politicians who are killing off our customers. Well, the that, I mean, yeah, but it's just, let's, we, could, we could do an entire hour on the mm. whole question of um, money in US politics and how it distorts both parties. You know, it is, it is, and having lived there and worked there and covered the specific area, it is one of the most, it's the most extraordinary, extraordinarily anti-democratic and insidious uh, thing, the way, the way money makes it virtually impossible to get anything of public interest done in the United States but by either party. And a reminder to us to keep that bloody stuff out, I would have thought. Yeah, but, um, exactly. Well, on, on a, on a, to, just to move to the UK for a minute, there's, I mean, our old friend Boris Johnson oh, yes, um, Boris. Gave, gave a speech yesterday, which is so ridiculous that I want to quote little bits of it, because it it's like his journalism. It's kind of off the cuff, sounded good when you'd had a few drinks, um, <laughs> writing it, uh, makes remarkably little sense. And, and it's actually quite important, though, because he's, he, he, you know, the Conservatives under Boris have done very, very well against Labour, particularly in what's called uh, the Red North or the Red Wall of these northern, northern English um, uh, towns and cities and electorates that really ought to ought to be traditional Labour or have been traditional Labour strongholds, and the Tories have done very well there. And so he's talked about using using economic influence to quote level up, and what that means is is getting those places to a higher standard of of income. And one of the one of the area, one of the barometers for that is is lifespan. And of course, he pointed out that in in one place in northern England, um, men uh, die ten years younger than they do in a, in a rich area. But he said, "Who knows why?" And of course, everybody knows why. You know, it's it's been well researched. It is all to do with economics, um, and it is all to do with social class. But he just to, just to give you this indication that you know you wonder. What he's been on when he's been writing that mm. kind of stuff, and you can th you can only really think that he must have written this. He was talking about strong leadership, and he said that that was the quotes the yeast that lifts the whole mattress of dough, the magic sauce, the ketchup of ketchup. <laughs> you know, I mean, he he thinks he's he thinks he's uh, Winston Winston Churchill, but he's not quite as clever as Winston Churchill. Yeah, but, uh, and but his the polls, former advisor the... Dominic. Yeah, the, I know, I know, I know. People are voting against their own interest as usual. Just imagine that. His his former advisor um, and bag carrier and you know arch villain uh, Dominic Cobb Cummings described the phrase of living up as a vacuous slogan that Johnson had come up with. Quotes partly out of irritation between told, sorry, partly out of irritation with being told to focus on the core message, and partly because he was irritated people. People were calling him a puppet who repeats my slogans. <laughs> so it is just, it, it, you know, if it was funny, if it was, you know, if it was a comedy, it would be hilarious. I mean, it beats Yes Minister, and it also beats um, Armando Iannucci's The Thick of It. Um, as a Guardian columnist said, um, Boris has got uh, a neck like a jockey's bollocks, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> uh, you got to admire the English. They do know how to make fun of their politicians, and they don't. That's right. They don't. That's um, right. They don't hold back. I must say, one of my favourite things every yeah. weekend is to listen to the Radio 4 um, uh, weekly comedy series, which often includes a programme called Dead Ringers, which mm. um, makes fantastic fun of Boris. Um, yeah. And to the point now where I, whenever I think of these British politicians, I think of the the um, the characterisation, you know, the 
the um, the way that uh, this program um, d- displays them, and it's uh, it's it's a cracking. I'll put a link into the into the um, yeah. Well, email you know, that goes Boris out. is yes, another example that 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 irony died a long time ago. He's a, he's a parody of himself. Yes. Now, tell me about Lego. Oh yeah. So I mean, just you know, we we like to finish our little sessions. I think Bernard with one of the. You know, either the only in America could this possibly happen story or the skateboarding dog type story. Um, and there's a gun, which is a uh, Glock, I think. Just let me check. It's a Glock, I think. And yeah, it's a, it's a Glock encased in Lego called the Block 19, uh, which has been forced to be withdrawn from sale. It's actually a rather beautiful gun, and I would definitely like one myself. Um, but it's, uh, it's um, been marketed as a, quote, childhood dream come to life. Uh, and uh, they've managed, the, the government has, or the, not the government, but the um, Lego. Uh, Lego is, of course, more powerful than the, than the American government in enforcing the Second Amendment, enforcing <laughs> change to the Second Amendment, uh, and this time through copyright. So Le- Lego objected, and um, the gun has now been withdrawn from sale. But uh, I, I would love to see one in my, um, in my Christmas hamper. It's, uh, 500, this, the kit for it is $549 to $765. Uh, and enticed adult gun users to buy the gun, quotes, made out of the Legos you got from Santa, close quotes. Uh, so anyway, it's all good. Only only in America. But you're right, um, Lego is um, is the Nokia of um, of Denmark in terms of... Um, That's right. ...the most extraordinary company. We'll see what... I mean, it's been around for a long time, hasn't it? There's, there must yeah, be well, great... It keeps um, doing better because, of course, what happens now, and it's quite funny, I've been doing having some presentations from computer companies Telling me that they're, uh, you know, oversimplifying their their systems to say it's just like Lego blocks, and the trouble is that <laughs> that, that metaphor no longer really works because Lego makes a huge amount of money now from uh, from sort of not pre-made sets but sets that can only build one thing rather than uh, the, you know, massive imagination of our childhoods when we uh, used either Meccano, which shows how old I am, or um, you probably used Lego, Bernard. Meccano, that was great with the yes. with the, the little screws and things. Yeah, no, I, I was into that. Yeah, we were. That was pretty special for us. Um, yeah, I shall. I shall avoid. Well, next, uh, next week we can talk about telegrams, fax machines, and the telex, <laughs> and, and and people people will say we don't believe you, uh, old man. Yeah. And the pigeons. Don't forget the pigeons. Um, yeah, we both exactly. worked for Reuters, which was built on pigeons. Um, yeah, I have convinced several people that my job in Fleet Street was, in fact, um, feeding the pigeons on the roof. <laughs> I think we were both in that building. I didn't it used to have we some pigeon pigeon um, hatches. They're not called hatches, are they? Whatever they are. Yeah, no, it, did, um, it absolutely had them. Yeah, no, no. And particularly yeah. you know, during World War II, pigeons were critical. Um, anyway, we better yeah. go. But it also had the Herald of yes. Free Enterprise. Statue standing over the um, standing over the door. I loved that building. It was a famous yeah, yeah. Uh, building by Edward Lutyens. Oh yeah, uh, but yeah. Um, I think vacated. Well, vacated now. Hey, yeah. um, Peter. Well, we thank- should, let's, let's not digress any further. But thank you for this week. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. I shall um, put on my fancy music and see if that works. Yes, it does. Uh, you have been listening to News Zealand Over the Horizon with Bernard Hickey and Peter Bale. On the kaka. Thank you very much, Peter. Bye. And we're out.